Warning, today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. What kind of a sick school is this? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Stand up to my little friend. I love to celebrate plum in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Hey! Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A Daniel man! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you have a phone. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Groovy. You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food, we got no jobs, our pets' heads are falling off! Come to the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey! I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to Then Is Now Podcast, the show in which we try to bring young people up to speed on all the cool stuff that they missed out on. I am your host, Rigor. So in episode four, Spency Donepeace and I covered the 1956 classic science fiction movie Forbidden Planet. And since then, we've had quite a few people ask for us to cover other similar films. So today, we're starting the first of what will become a regular series on Then Is Now called Classic Sci-Fi Films. Filmmaker Joe Lemieux is going to join me, and we're going to discuss the 1953 George Powell classic, The War of the Worlds. Now, this is another movie that falls under the category of required viewing. We've got a lot of fun things coming up here on Then Is Now, so don't forget to give us a great review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts from. If you want to chime in on the discussions, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thenisnowpodcast. You can also send us your thoughts on existing episodes or things you'd like us to cover in future episodes by emailing us at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. And don't forget to visit our website, havenpodcasts.com, for more fun stuff and our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss spaghetti westerns and Shaw Brothers films. So if you haven't seen the original War of the Worlds from 1953, we highly advise you to see it. Come back and listen to the show. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? Oh, yeah, I'm today. 
I think you should consider transferring to shop class. Woo -woo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shop class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. We lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play, and have fun now! Okay, folks, I'm here with filmmaker Joe Lemieux. Joe, glad to have you back. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So the picture we're going to discuss today is none other than War of the Worlds from 1953. Produced by George Powell, directed by Byron Haskin, and screenplay by Barry Lyndon, based on the classic 1897 novel by famed sci-fi author H.G. Wells. be the beginning of the end for the human race. For what men first thought were meteors or the often ridiculed flying saucers are in reality the flaming vanguard of the invasion from Mars. Looks like they're going to come out of that gully pretty soon. We'll have to rush our defenses to be ready when they do. Guards need plenty of reinforcements. We'll get them. Lieutenant, look! They slash across country like scythes wiping out everything that's trying to get away from them. That explains why communication is cut the moment their machines begin moving. Montreal's blacked out. Nothing more has come through. Same thing that happened on the Pacific Coast. Anything from them yet? No, Mr. Secretary. We've had nothing from San Francisco for over five hours. The nations of the world mobilized their armed might, rushing to defend the Earth against the unknown weapons of the super race from the Red Planet. Is there nothing that can stop the Martian death machines? Tanks, bombs, they're like toys against them. We know now that we can't beat their machines. We've got to beat them. All over the world, human beings cower before the onslaught of these unearthly enemies, whom no one has ever seen. <coughs> Panic that sweeps around the globe as the great masses of mankind flee blindly in a headlong stampede of hysteria. In Southern California, Dr. Clayton Forrester, a scientist who had worked on the Manhattan Project, is fishing with colleagues when a large object crashes near the town of Linda Rosa. At the impact site, he meets USC library science instructor Sylvia Van Buren and her uncle, Pastor Matthew Collins. Later that day, the cylinder opens and the inhabitants of the ship kill a welcoming party, simultaneously shutting down all technology in the town with an electromagnetic pulse. The United States military surrounds the crash site in battle formation as reports pour in of identical objects landing all over the world and destroying cities. 
Collins attempts to make peace with the Martians before being killed himself. The Martian war machines effortlessly defeat the military with a heat ray. Attempting to escape, Forrester and Sylvia hide in an abandoned farmhouse. They begin to develop romantic feelings for each other before the house is buried by yet another cylinder. They encounter and dismember an electronic eye from the Martian machine and collect a blood sample from a creature that was wounded by Forrester to protect Sylvia. They manage to sneak away from the aliens without being seen. Many of the major capitals of the world are destroyed in the attacks, and the United States government makes the decision to use nuclear weapons against the invaders. Forrester brings the Martian camera and blood samples to his team at Pacific Tech with the hope that they can study the alien technology. An attempt to destroy a camp of Martians by nuclear strike fails due to the integrity of their force shields, but Forrester remains hopeful that they can fight the Martians by studying the blood. As the Martians advance on Los Angeles with nothing left to fight them, the city is evacuated and many of the inhabitants are forced to live in the wilderness. Forrester, Sylvia, and the Pacific Tech team are split apart by looters and their scientific equipment is stolen or destroyed. Forrester searches for Sylvia in the city while the Martians cause widespread destruction. Based on a story she had told him earlier, he deduces that she would be hiding in a church. After searching through a couple of churches, he finds Sylvia in the third among many praying survivors. Just as the Martians strike the church, their machines suddenly fall dead out of the skies. Forrester believes the pilot of one such machine is dead and notes that they were all praying for a miracle. It's revealed by the radio announcer slash narrator that while the Martians were impervious to humanity's weapons, it was the tiniest things on Earth that had killed them. All right, Joe, my first question to you is, why didn't the dumbass aliens wear spacesuits when they traveled to another planet? They would have conquered Earth if, it, if they did. That's a good question. I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe it's... Uh... They thought they're better than they thought they're too good looking to wear spacesuits. I don't know. <laughs> right, the spacesuits made them look fat. <laughs> yeah, it's like it makes me look like I gained ten pounds, and plus with the gravity of Earth, it's <laughs> right. <even> worse. <laughs> so it was a vanity reason. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's like I couldn't find a helmet that fit my three eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so when was the first time you saw this? Do you remember? Uh, it was. Um, I think it was 10 years old, uh, Channel 38. They showed it every Halloween night because that was the same night Orson Welles did his radio show of um, War of the Worlds was on Halloween. Yes. Which the population thought was was real. <laughs> yes. Yep. It, it scared popped, quite a few popped people. in the middle of it. Yeah. It's like I even I've heard stories of like relatives saying that they would sit up the roof uh, in Rhode Island, and they say they would see the lights of Manhattan and think Manhattan's burning. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I heard too that there was um, um, his show, which was uh, the name escapes me at, at the moment, but the radio show he was doing it for was up against another show that was sort of like a, like a variety kind of show, where they had different mm -hmm. performers on singing and and whatnot. I guess whatever you could hear, you couldn't really see it. And for whatever reason, the performer that happened to be on at that moment, everyone thought was boring. So they switched over to his show and they missed the disclaimer at the building at the beginning, rather, yeah. saying that it was just a um, just a show, just, you know, fiction. And they thought yeah. it was real. A Halloween prank. Yeah, I think it was his uh, Mer Mercury Theater Group, I think it was. Thank you. Yes, that was it. I just couldn't I didn't have it in front of me in my notes. Yeah. So uh, same here with seeing uh, War of the Worlds on Halloween. I remember that as well on Channel 38, and uh, that was always fun. It wasn't, I think it wasn't until uh, John Carpenter's Halloween started to play around that time that I stopped watching The War of the Worlds. Yeah, probably around the same time too, but I remember where 38 was almost like a tradition. Like, like the Three Stooges? 
What? Or, or like It's a Wonderful Life on Christmas. Yep. Or the Three Stooges marathons oh, at New whoa, whoa. Year's. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, Boston oh. TV is is really cool. And folks, if you haven't had a chance to check out our Retro TV Guide scans page on Facebook, you should check it out because we have a lot of cool entries from old TV guides in the Boston area. I'm gonna have to dig out a War of the Worlds one. I, I'm sure there's one. I may actually already have it in my computer. Yeah, I wonder if we could find like a clip of it on YouTube of Dana Hershey uh, introducing War of the Worlds. Oh, that would be cool. I'll have to write that down. And... It's all around. Yeah, he's still around. He's still um, doing uh, radio work in Boston on AM radio. I forget now. He might have moved to another station. I was listening to one a while ago just because he was doing it. He was on, um, geez, I forget now. It was one of those stations that played mostly classic rock, but it was like into the 90s as well, I think. With the movie loft, was like, which is where uh, War of the Worlds was being shown on, it, they would show films in their entirety un- uncut. Yep. For like <laughs> regular TV, yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> I have unheard of. I have on VHS. I recorded his showing of Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, that was uncut. Wow. And in fact, I think on my on our um, Haven Podcast YouTube channel, I have the um, host segments on there. Oh wow! Okay, so let's move into the cast and crew of, of this film before we dissect the film itself. Now we've got the director uh, Byron Haskin. And he he did Walt Disney's first live action film, which was Treasure Island in 1950. Um, he's also known for doing Robinson Crusoe on Mars in 64. But it was really his close association with producer George Powell that gave him a career bump, specifically with this film. But he also collaborated with Powell on three other films, The Naked Jungle in 54, Conquest of Space in 55, and The Power in 68. And a uh, little known fact, he also co-produced the original Star Trek pilot. Did you know that? No, I did not. Wow. Yeah. I think he did a solid solid job here. I mean, we know we all know George Powell was over his shoulder, but I heard a um documentary saying that George Powell was there to oversee, but he didn't really micromanage the the crew. Yeah, I think Byron Haskins was kind of was like a real workhorse. Like he would he was a known as like a, a a, a top director, but he was known as a, a, a competent director. Yes. He could get the job done. Yeah. But he, did, he didn't have the, the cachet of like Billy Wilder or Cecil B. DeMille or anything like that. So. Right, right. Speaking of Cecil B. DeMille, um, he's got an uncredited role as the executive producer here because Paramount bought the rights to the novel War of the Worlds from author H.G. Wells in 1925, which was at the request of DeMille. But, he, I mean, at that point, he was one of si- the silent era's most successful directors and he originally planned to make the film but ultimately abandoned the project it probably seemed too daunting in the 1920s to do war of the worlds yeah i can only imagine like like i know even not to get off track uh ray harryhausen was planning on doing a, a version of it yes he was actually yeah. and um they did a test footage of the, the martian coming out of the uh machine and it actually looks like the the kraken has got the same face <laughs> oh that's awesome uh, yeah i think he um he wanted to make it, and he he actually uh, Harryhausen had like concept sketches and a sixty millimeter stop motion animation test uh, test reel that he had done for several years yep. before George Powell did it. Mm-hmm. And let's see, he used to work for George Powell actually he was part of his team. Yeah, Papa Tunes. Yep, and so was Willis O'Brien, which is interesting. Famous for doing the animation on King Kong. Yep, and Mighty Joe Young. Yep. Um, and, you know, pioneer. I mean, they're all pioneers. You know, George right. Powell, he was a powerhouse Hollywood producer in his day. And it's funny because as a kid, did you always think that he was the director of the film because it's George Powell's H, uh, War of the World? Yeah. Yeah. The, always, the same goes with him, his 
name would come up in the beginning of uh, the time machine. The time machine. That's right. Yeah. You know, he he did the time machine. He did Destination Moon, When Worlds Collide, Houdini, Atlantis, The Lost Continent, The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. And he even produced the Doc Savage Man of Bronze movie. He's kind of like the, the Spielberg of his time, I think. Yeah, I would agree. Just all his imaginative movies are just, and they were all hits. And like you said, he started off in cartoons. Then he moved into the puppet features that were called puppetoons. And uh, we had already mentioned that Harryhausen and Willis O'Brien worked for him. They, they both became legends in their own right. I mean, it's just an amazing time for creativity. And uh, Powell was friends with uh, Walter Lance, who created Woody Woodpecker, as well as Walt Disney. So he was up yeah, there with, with them. That's why Woody Woodpecker shows up in War of the Worlds. Say that again? Woody Woodpecker is in War of the Worlds. In what scene? Uh, the first opening scene of the Forest Ranger uh, Tower. Oh, yeah. There's a tree in the background, and Woody Woodpecker is in the top of the tree in a bird's nest. Oh, that's funny. I, re- I remember hearing about that, but I didn't notice this time around when I watched it. Yeah, it shows up. Woody Woodpecker also shows up in the time machine. A little girl drops a Woody Woodpecker doll on the way to the uh, bomb shelter. That's right. Yep. Okay. And then, um, and then a cartoon of Woody Woodpecker shows up in When Worlds Collide. That's oh, that's funny. I love stuff like that. Just little Easter eggs, you know. Like, like paying tribute to someone who got him, gave him a job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and the, again, all these guys were just so amazingly creative. It was, it was a, it was just an amazing time for all all these creative guys that got together and, you know, weren't competitive. They they helped each other. Yeah, exactly. Like even like uh, the special effects. I think they were done by Charlie Gamora. Yes. Yeah, he did the the Martian, and I don't know if he built the the Martian machines themselves, but I think he was definitely part of the crew. Right, right. They were mechanics inside and electronics inside the the ships, the the the, the death ships, whatever you want to call them, with the Cobra heads on them because they yeah, lit yeah, up. They, they, they're kind of uh, modeled after the, like a manta ray. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and Bob Burns said, sadly, none of them survived. They were all they were all melted down. Right, right. I saw a, a documentary with him, and he was showing one, and he's like, no, this wasn't really used in it, because the originals, actually, they lit up, and the green on the wings and yep. all that stuff. And they were really flying them on strings. Like, like um, what's her name? Ann Robinson was saying that she it was the most amazing thing to see these things moving across the set. Yeah, with the wires. Yep. They painted the wires yeah. blue, so they would um, mm-hmm. uh, chroma key them out. And the sound of the array is a, a, a electric guitar with the reverb added to it. Nice. Nice. And also the sound on the green, the, uh, the disintegrator rays are, um, it's, it's by what, like taking a wrench and hitting a, a cable with it. Yep. Cause yep. it's the same sound effect as the torpedoes and mm-hmm. the enterprise in star Trek. That's right. And one of the things too, is pal wanted them to be, um, the alien ships to be like they are in the book because in the book, they're these giant tripod machines and mm-hmm. they just couldn't afford to do the legs. But in this movie, they kind of, they got away with not doing it by saying, you know, oh, well, there's three energy beams like legs coming out from under, under them and they're invisible. And that's probably how they're they're moving around, which also explains why the force fields are like domes that go all the way to the ground because they're not flying. They're actually walking. Yeah, that's true. I never realized that because you could get, kind of see them flickering on and off in the background. Yes. Uh, the, the legs. Yeah. The, leg. well, the domes are actually glass domes that they actually put over the, the ships. That's I don't know crazy. how they did it with the strings. Yeah. I was going to say, how how did they do it with the strings? 
that's the other question. I have no idea. <laughs> but the domes must have been huge. Plus, oh, yeah. Plus, plus they must have done something with the glass because you'd get reflection of the camera, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It, uh, it's smart to do something. I mean, there was a lot. There was a lot involved in those shots where there was, you know, either matte paintings or blue screen in the background, and mm. then smoke and fire and explosions. So that, I, I can't imagine what a headache that must have been to film. But even the uh, the opening narration of the planets was supposed to be originally done by Cecil B. DeMille, but Pal thought his voice might be too recognizable. Right. So yep. they got Sir Cedric Hardwick. Right, who's famous for a lot of the Universal classics that we love. Yep. Goes to Frankenstein, Invisible Agent, um, Ten Commandments as well. That's right. You know, when I was a kid, I always confused him with um, Lionel Atwell. I always thought they looked the same, and it was I was a kid. I remember as a kid, yeah. I think it was Ghost of Frankenstein. I had a hard time telling who was who. That's <laughs> right. You look a lot like. Yeah. <laughs> so Cedric Harvick was such a historian of George um, uh, H.U. Wells and, uh, and Jules Verne that his uh, bio is called uh, A Victorian in Orbit. Oh, that's awesome. Did he do, he did the, what was it, First Men on the Moon? The silent mm -hmm. one? Yep. He did that, right? Yeah, that's awesome. You could t you could tell he had a passion for it. It's too bad he, you know, he couldn't have really done stuff later when they really had good effects and technology. I know. So we've got Gene Barry who plays Doctor Clayton Forrester, and obviously for those at home, this character name was used for the head bad scientist on Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand, as played by Trace Bellew. <laughs> and I I remember a long time ago after you having really gotten into MST3K when it was, you know, fresh and new, and then watching War of the Worlds and going, oh, wait a minute, that's the same name. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what, wonder what he thought of that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Probably got a, a hoot out of it. <laughs> I think so, yeah. I mean, Gene Barry was in quite a few TV shows from the 50s to the 80s, but it really was War of the Worlds that he's most well-known for, and he did have a cameo in the uh, 2005 remake with Tom Cruise. Okay, I didn't know that. Like, uh, but I know he was also in um, an adventure drama in Egypt called like Valley of the Kings or something. Oh, okay, yeah. And then he was also known as uh, Bat Masterson for the Western TV show of the nineteen sixties. That's right, Bat Masterson. That was a good show. But he said he, he says out of his whole career, he always looks back at War of the Worlds as being his uh, his one true joy. That's cool. That's that's awesome. Um, and Anne Robinson, who played Sylvia Van Buren, she also had a cameo in the 2005 remake. Um, I'm going to have to watch that one again because I don't remember them, but they were grandmother and grandfather. Well, she she was also in the uh, the TV series there, War of the That's Worlds. That's right. That was... Um, playing, the, playing the same character. Yep, played the same character from the late 80s. I, in fact, I remember watching that show, and that was a good show because it had Jared Martin and uh, Richard Chavez, who was in Predator. She did a lot of TV work. It was kind of sporadic, though. She did, like, from the 50s into the 70s. She did just a little bit in the 70s and the 80s and then came back for the remake, and I don't think she's done anything since that. Yeah, I met her briefly at the um, Son of Famous Monsters Film Convention in Universal City back in 1995. Wow. Um, and she, was, she looked just as gorgeous then as she did back then. Nice. And she was so cool, and she was hang out geeking out with all of us fans, so... <laughs> oh that's awesome yeah that's like julie adams from creature from the black lagoon she was always with the fans right up to the end i think like, I, I like people who, who actually embrace the fans instead of being kind of hard-nosed like it's like 
get away from me. Right. Like, oh. You'd have no career without us fans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, I wanted to talk about my, my one of my favorite character actors who's in this, and he's just awesome in this movie. It's Les Tremaine. He plays G- Major General Mann, and I think he's among the best character actors ever. Because, you know, and he was in such classics as North by Northwest, Angry Red Planet, King Kong vs. Godzilla, tons of stuff. He even briefly took over the role of Edward Quartermain on General Hospital. But, uh, Joe, the fans and you and I probably remember him best as the character mentor on the live-action Shazam TV series of the 70s. Oh, wow. I totally forgot that. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I never forgot that. And Les Tremaine as mentor. <laughs> was, he, was he also a voice in Johnny Quest? He may have been. I don't have that in front of me. We'll have to look that up. But yeah, I mean, he's just been everywhere. I, I, I love this guy. I love his character in this movie. He just has such a stature to him, the way he talks with his voice. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, uh, I think he was also in a movie called The Forbin Project. Colossus The Forbin Project. Yes, he was. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. He's so good. You know, in, in my mind, he's kind of the backbone of this movie because he's so awesome he can't be stopped and he's he's just positive the entire time that they're going to be able to stop the invasion no matter what happens no matter what they throw at the aliens and it doesn't work he he never lets himself get down about it for some reason he knows clayton forrester is like oh i remember you from oak ridge yeah (laughs) of course you do I just, yeah, it's an interesting setup for the movie, you know. The, oh, oh, well, meteor crashed. Oh, well, there's a couple of scientists that are out fishing down the, on the lake. Why don't we go get them? <laughs> then you get the chef that goes, uh, or the um, the deputy goes down there stealing their fish. Yeah. Well, you might have a fish sandwich. <laughs> he pulls and makes a seat for himself at the table. That was funny. And one, of the, one of the guys there who's not really a big character in the movie with the blonde hair, he played the scientist in the... Um, the thing that uh, from another planet. Oh, really? Oh, that's right. Yeah. What was his name? Yeah. Which he was the one of the ones that was fishing with them, right? Yeah, he was in the around the campfire. Um, it was probably either Robert Cornthwaite or Lewis Martin. Uh, Robert Cornthwaite. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yep. And and he was close friends with Joe Dante. He I guess he appeared in Matinee. Um, because Joe Dante would visit him at the uh, old. The Hollywood old age home. <laughs> oh, that's great. And hear stories of what it was like back then. Wow, that must have been fascinating. I would love to be there and talk to him. Now, there's a, lot, a ton of other actors in this movie, and aside from Robert Cornthwaite, we're not really going to go into them unless there's something you can think of, Joe. But the one I did want to mention was Paul Fries, whose voice is um, from the beginning. He's the one that talks about World War II, although the World Wars, and then he... Um, then he goes, and then it's coming, the War of the Worlds. So he does that initial announcement before Cedric Hardwick's. Um, yep. And then he appears towards the end of the film um, as what the second radio reporter. And he, he's another guy. His voice is just so distinct. Oh, oh. I know. You know, I think one of the most famous ones that people will remember is uh, Burgermeister Meisterberger from Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Yep, yep. A yo-yo, I love yo-yos. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also... Just remember, what? I just remember him recording. He's like, it's like, these tapes will be saved for future history. And they're like, future history. Right. <laughs> he's, there ever is one. He's also, and it's, if people don't remember the Burgermeister, he's also the disembodied voice that guides you through Disney's Haunted Mansion. Oh, wow. Yeah. He has such a distinct voice. He's almost up there with like Falls Ravencroft. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
who was Tony the Tiger in the who sang the Grinch's uh, yep. song. Yep. Yeah. Thor, Rave, was it Thorogood Ravencroft? Uh, Thals. Thals Ravencroft. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I just love the name. It's, I love these these character actors with the um, these amazing voices. And one thing I found out in my research that I did not know about Paul Frees is if you remember the Knight Rider TV show, there was a villainous opponent car to Kit whose name was Carr, K-A-R-R, and that was yep. Paul Frees' voice as well. <laughs> which I had... He probably, recorded, he probably recorded in his living room wearing his robe. Yeah, no kidding. Still drinking coffee. <laughs> I'll get you, Knight Rider. <laughs> Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio. Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk. And the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster, Monster Kid Radio. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Hey folks, I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts. Podserve.fm Podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. 
Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at Podcast Upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, PodServe makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on PodParadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, Pod Paradise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. PodSurf's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I, I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcasts on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. Check them out. So let's talk about the film a little bit. I, I did stumble across some interesting facts. So I'll try and throw them in here as we're discussing the movie. One of the things I found out was that when George Powell decided to make the film in the 50s, he found that Paramount had licensed only the silent film rights. And at that point, H.G. Wells had passed away. So Powell had to go to his estate and, uh, you know, and run the whole thing by his sons in order to get the rights for the sound version. I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. And also, um, this is a movie has a first in it because there was a stuntman, Harvey Parry. He had been a double for like James Cagney, John Wayne, he even doubled for Shirley Temple, I guess, at one point. But it's the scene where the guy gets engulfed in flames. And I don't know if it's the first one on screen, but it's among the first. I think it's the guy that falls over the table. Yes. Yeah. He comes running out of the tent completely on fire and yep. crashes. That's that's such a great scene. And again, you know, it was just the, the effects were such an amazing mix of, you know, effects on the set as well as things that weren't on set, like the ships or, or you know, anything flying. Yeah, around. I, mean, I think the majority of it was shot on like stage 12 or something. Yes, um, it was a double stage so they could have it. They could like remove the center and, and have the trenches and stuff. The only couple location shots I remember is the one where. Wayne Forest is running down the middle of like LA, and I think they shot at like at five in the morning on a Sunday, right? Uh, when there's no traffic, so this scattered a bunch of newspapers everywhere, and I had a truck kiltered corner on the corner. Yep. So I don't think they even had a permit either. So no, um, I don't think they did either. <laughs> so like, what's the shift us now? Everybody's in bed or church. Yeah, and that was for a lot of like the long shots of, you know, like Forrester walking down the street and it's very empty. But then when they get to the close ups of, of the fights that went on in the streets, that was on the Paramount yeah. back lot. Yeah, de- definitely. Yeah, definitely. And 
there's a clock shop there. There's a bit of like a Easter eggs in the clock shop uh, when he when they're stealing, looting stuff in the clock shop. The four clocks on the stands are the same clocks that show up at the beginning of the time machine. Oh, that's interesting. I thought you were going to say uh, Buster Keaton was hanging from the clock. <laughs> that or um, what's the other sound actor there? Oh yeah, uh, glasses. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of was Buster Keaton, but it's not him. It's the um, yeah, that'll come to us. Harold Lloyd. Harold Lloyd. Very good. Yep. So, um, in talking about um, differences between the book and the movie. H.G. Wells, you know, he was he was this kind of secular guy, and in the book he depicts the pastor as sort of cowardly and uninspiring, but in the movie the pastor's sympathetic, and he's even heroic as, spoiler, he sacrifices himself for everybody, which it was a great scene, but I didn't quite, I thought he was going to walk out and try to broker a peace with the aliens, but he just walks out quoting Psalms 23-4 and gets blasted. Yeah, I'm surprised even from that time to have a... a... <laughs> See a priest get incinerated because back then the church was so it's like wow this is kind of risky for them isn't it? That is that is true. I I am surprised. Well, those those poor three guys in the beginning there. Yeah, like, everyone knows a white flag, right? It's like what we say, welcome to California. <laughs> and that was a cool shot too because even though it's obvious that the, where they were standing, both the floor and the wall were probably mm -hmm. painted blue, it it just yep. looked cool. It, it just like. I don't know. I can't describe it. It just looked really cool the way that they were getting incinerated. And the, uh, do you recognize the actor who, who played the Mexican character or the first three guys? Um, I, I don't recall. He plays the dad in the, uh, the TV show Webster. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, that's and funny. He, he, he was no, the, uh, um, Joe Dante, I always call him the ambiguous, uh, Mexican in most movies. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, That's oh, we need to start playing Mexican. Got this guy. Right. Like, we can't get Charlton Heston. So. I'm, not, I'm not really Mexican, but whatever. I'll take the job. Right. I know you can't get away with that in Hollywood anymore. You know, John Wayne is Genghis Khan and Charlton Heston is a Mexican. <laughs> yeah, I know. Ay, ay, ay. Those poor guys. Are just like, it's like, we could have like a picnic tables up here. And, 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 uh, the missing guy's like, yeah, we can sell enchiladas. Enchiladas. Like, <laughs> it's better than a snake pit. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, in the in the book and in the movie, the the reason the alien, the Martians, I should say, are uh, invading the Earth is because Mars is basically, you know, no longer able to ver support life very well. Mm -hmm. So they decide to make Earth their new ho new home, and they go there with no spacesuits. Um, but in the film. They really don't have any use for humans. They're just destroying everything. But in the book, they actually feed on the humans by using yeah, these weird tendrils of like red weeds or something that that sucks the blood out of people. Yeah, that that was depicted in the Spielberg movie, which I never knew. So that's right. Quite horrifying too. Yeah, yeah, they did that really well. And I remember watching the, the remake. I'm not a big fan of remakes, but I I have to say I thought it was okay. And um, mm -hmm. I, I I had to go and look up the whole thing about the red tendrils because I didn't, I was like, well, did they make that up? I don't remember that from the original movie. And, you know, yeah, kind of, no. <laughs> come to find out it was from the book. <laughs> and a spoiler again, the end of the movie there, the aliens are uh, defeated by the smallest thing in the world, bacteria, because they didn't wear spacesuits. Mm -hmm. And in the book, in the movie, it takes them, they die three weeks 
after getting exposed to our atmosphere. But in the book, it's only like three days, and then they fall into suspended animation. Okay. I thought that was interesting. And the, so the, they fall, if they fall into suspended animation, I mean, there's room for a sequel, right? Well, I think that's what the TV show was based on. Yeah. Is that they took the premise that they didn't actually die. They were suspended or whatever, and then that's where some of them woke up and what they like took on human form. It's been, God, 20 years since I've watched that show. Yeah, they're wearing these weird suits. They look like gas masks or something, and they're on the ground or something. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to revisit that at some point if it's if it's available to watch. That was a good show. But the weird thing was, I think it was only, what, two seasons? And in the second season, they jumped it ahead like 10 years, and and the Earth was decimated again. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's up but, with uh, that. But a bit of a trivia about the beginning there, um, with those... Um, astronomical uh paintings those are painted on glass oh really um, and they were huge they were like 20 feet by five feet i think wow and they had some kind of object in like something in the foreground some kind of modeling bob burns owns all those paintings somewhere in some warehouse oh that's amazing um, and they were painted by chesley bonestell who also designed the golden gate bridge and uh, the chrysler building there's a set of credentials for you yeah, yeah, but they they end up mentioning every planet except for um, Venus for some reason. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> Maybe they looked at it and it's like, eh, if Earth doesn't work out, we'll go there next. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, the, you're right. They didn't. I I was I was actually paying attention for that too. They don't mention Venus. <laughs> like what for time constraint? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! So the Martians themselves in the book. They're described as being like bear-sized, roundish kind of creatures with brown bodies and almost like merely heads with a quivering beak, you know, V-shaped mouths dripping saliva. They've got 16 whip-like tentacles and two groupings of eight arranged on each side of their mouths and two large luminous wow. dislike eyes. But due to budget constraints, they're just short. In the movie, they're just short, reddish brown creatures with two long, thin arms that have thin fingers with suction cups at the end. And we don't actually even see their legs, but you can imagine they probably have like ET kind of legs. Yeah, I figured that. Like, like when I guess when Charlie Gamora and his daughter were doing the scene, the thing was kind of falling apart with the harsh lights on it. Oh wow! Uh, so that was all done in one take. When when he turns around, and flashes the light on it, and, and it runs a- away. And it gets pulled out. It was actually on a, a board with wheels, like a skateboard, and it's being pulled out by a rope. By the oh, time wow. we got to, by the time we got to the end of the soundstage, the thing just collapsed into into mush. Oh my god! <laughs> it's falling apart. It's like, like I guess Charlie Gamora's daughter's job was to keep pumping the bladders so the the veins would pulse on the on the on the skin. <laughs> And his job was to articulate the arm and the hand to do the... And I always wonder when E.T. grabs Illich's shoulder if it's taken from that scene. Oh, yeah. I bet you that is an homage to that. Yeah. And that scene is is really just amazing, too. I love how it's shot. I love how it's it's lit. I mean, the whole movie, the color and the lighting is great. But, you know, the house is wrecked because the alien ship crashes and the shockwave wrecks the house and Forrester and Sylvia are inside of it. And then the alien comes out, and that whole scene, even as a kid, was very terrifying. But you, you barely see it. You, you kind of see it moving off as its fingers off, and she's like, oh, my God, I saw one of them. You can kind of see it, but you couldn't see it. Yeah. So it's kind of... And it, it, it skitters off. And the shadow, when, as it's just approaching them, 
is great as it's oh, looming yeah. across. It's like it's not a good way to make peace with a future alien race. Yeah, well, I'll throw this two by four at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are blowing up the cities. I mean, <laughs> that's true. And even that shot when the first when the meteor crashes into the house in the background, you can see two more in the background coming down behind it. Right. It gives it such an epic dimension, and it's obviously a miniature. Oh yeah, I, I, yeah, yet another movie where they've got great miniatures. Like I know some people today, like women filmmakers, they'll see it today. It's like, oh, of course, she's cooking them, bacon and eggs. Like, no, he's helping out too. Right. <laughs> Relax. No kidding. <laughs> oh my god! And so, uh, getting back to the aliens in the in the book here, the their devices or their machines are, you know, they're like ten stories tall. They're tripods. They've got sort of a, you know, a round main uh compartment or whatever you want to call it main part of the ship that has the three legs coming off from under it and then they've got the heat ray on an on an arm it's like it's this articulated arm that's connected to the front of the main body and in the movie like we said before they're more shaped like manta rays they look like they're flying and then they've got these bulbous elongated green windows at the front through which they is almost like a periscope and then this cobra head light ray, cobra head like ray attached to a long narrow gooseneck extension. So I I I just think that the design is even though it's not like the book, it's still very effective. Yeah, it's fantastic. Like I can't even imagine back in the nineteen fifties seeing something like that because it, it it must have been almost like equivalent to seeing King Kong for the first time. That and when I was watching it this time, I was thinking Independence Day. Like for for how we were kind of wowed when we saw that movie, is probably how people were wowed when they saw War of the Worlds. Yeah, because no one's ever seen technology used that way. Yeah, or, or or somewhat realistic. Right. Oh man, I mean, and just mind blowing. The whole battle scenes between the the military and the aliens was just so well done. Of course, every time they vaporize on those military guys, you can hear them suffer a little bit. Like ah. Yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah. Like, like, oh, so they're actually, they're not just vaporizing, they're actually feeling being vaporized. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and and when the, the, um, the, the, what do you call it? Like the tentacle kind of thing that's moving that looks like a cobra head, it sounds like a rattlesnake when it's moving around, you know? Wow, well, howdy, partner. How can I help you today? I'm looking for a movie to watch, but I... What in tarnation was that? Never you mind, son. Now let's focus on your needs here. I'm looking for something to watch, but I want something I ain't seen yet. Ooh, watch yourself there, partner. Why, I reckon you've come to the right place. You've come to the place where the East meets the West. The East meets the West? Where is that, and how's that going to help me? Ooh, that was close. You better duck. I don't understand what's going on here. It's like I'm in a place where kung fu and cowboys have combined somehow. Well, that's right, partner. You're going to find some offbeat films here, no doubt about that. Host Rigor is going to take you on a journey to discover not only the hundreds of amazing martial arts films of Hong Kong's Shaw Brothers, but also at least spaghetti westerns. Spaghetti westerns? Is that some kind of joke? No, sir. Western movies made in Italy from the 60s to the 80s are called spaghetti westerns, and that's a fact. Hunt! Hunt! 
You can find the East Meets the West on all the major podcasting apps as well as havenpodcast.com. Well, thank you kindly, sir. You done settled my entertainment needs, even though it's a tad dangerous in your store. Like I said, go to your podcasting apps or go to havenpodcast.com. The East Meets the West. Your new favorite ranch to hang out at. But just remember uh, that I having a look like a the game Simon. That's right. Yep. Was, to me. I was thinking the same thing. Oh, you know what? It also reminded me of it. Might definitely reminded me of Simon, but it also reminded me of the old three gun projectors that we used to have. I don't know if you've ever seen those. Um, you know, right now nowadays we have the LCD projectors where you can project you know movie onto a screen. Oh, yep, yep. And those three gun oh, wow. projectors are really good. Yeah, and the um, that rattlesnake sound, I thought was really effective too. Yeah, yeah, that was very cool. It was like it was kind of creepy when it when it came in and it and it had like that bronze type look to it. Yeah, it kind of almost reminded me a little bit of something from the the nineteen eighty one movie Flash Gordon, kind of like. Oh yeah, I could see that. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. It's just amazing too, like the when the uh, the Marine Force opens fire on the Martians with everything they've got, and you can see the force fields. <laughs> yeah. the, it's like nothing can stop them. And then they use mm-hmm. the nuke, and the people, the people in the mm-hmm. trench are like, you know, downwind of the nuclear wind, and it's like you know, well, they're gonna die of cancer in like two years. <laughs> yeah, the guy got the guy got blown off the news truck there. Yeah. <laughs> If you're that close to a but nuke, actually, forget it. George Powell even thought that when the nuke was going to be dropped, uh, they have it transfer to a 3D and have go- 3D goggles, like the goggles that the military are wearing. Oh, that's cool. But I guess it got the process. Yeah, budgetary reasons. That would have been awesome. Yeah, and, and plus, how do you get people faces in a movie to put on goggles? Right. Well, they did it in 13 Ghosts. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the disintegration effects, uh, by the way, it took um, 144 separate matte paintings to do that. Oh. Yeah. I don't understand how, oh. how they did that. The sound effects of the war machine's heat rays were, of the heat rays firing, were created by mixing the sound of three electric guitars and then recording them backwards, which is kind of yeah. cool. Well, I, mentioned, I mentioned it was an electric, electric guitar, but... That's right. I didn't know it was three, and I didn't know it was backwards, so... Yeah. Um, <laughs> and even the scene where... The scene where uh, Clean Forrester and um, Sylvia Bruin are, are running away from uh, the attack. Yeah. They said they came pretty close to getting run over by half track. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they, my God. They went, they went the opposite direction of what the director told them to go, and then all of a sudden, here we are, actually avoiding military from running us over. <laughs> yeah, and they shot it. Um, the specific location that they went to, there was, um, I think it was the National Guard was on Bivouac. So that that's why they went there because they had all the tanks and everything, and so they could use all that military equipment in the movie. Oh wow! And let's That'd see. Be nice to have such toys around you when you need them. I know, kidding. Or to get the tank and crush things. Um. <laughs> so the the Martian scream in the farmhouse, or in the ruined farmhouse, was uh, created by mixing the sound of a microphone scraping along dry ice, being combined with a woman's recorded scream. And then reverse played to make the sound effect mix. I thought that was kind of a cool little fact. Wow. Oh, great, great Foley department. Yeah, 
Yeah, very, very well done. And you know what this movie reminds me of? I was thinking of on this viewing. Um, I think I've thought of it on other times I've watched it. There was a book series called by a guy named John Christopher called The Tripods. And he wrote a trilogy of books, which mm-hmm. they had made into a BBC series in the 80s. Do you remember that? No. Yeah, it was a show called The Tripods. It was really cool. And they had, it was basically these aliens from the planet Trion invade the Earth with giant tripod machines, just like in War of the Worlds, like more like the novel. And what they end up doing is they enslave humanity. And when a kid gets to age 13, there's like all the humans, because they're slaves, they have this little ceremony process and the kid is pulled up into the tripod by this giant, you know, mechanical tentacle. And it's called the capping process. And basically they shave the top of the kid's head and put this almost like a, uh, a triangular circuit board on their head that attaches to their brain so that everyone is basically under their control. So the show, of course, is about these three kids that managed to escape that because they're about to turn 13, and they find out that there's free men in the White Mountains leading a resistance against the aliens, and then the whole goal is to get there. And it just, it's so, it's such an homage to War of the Worlds that I, I was enjoying oh, yeah, it. George Powell did a, uh, uh, an episode of Puppetunes, which almost resembles War of the Worlds to a degree, and it dealt with these things called the screwballs. There were these tripod-type bolt, nuts and bolts attacking like a, a Swiss village. Oh, wow. And I guess they were supposed to represent, represent the Nazis. And, and everybody in the village ends up hiding in a church. And when it starts to rain, the, the nuts and bolts end up rusting up. <laughs> and the rain ends up defeating them. Oh, that's awesome. It's like, like huh, kind of close beautiful. to War of the Worlds. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that's really cool. I have to. I haven't never. I have never seen any of those uh, Puppetoons movies, so I might have to check those out if, if they're available. Are they available? Do you know? Probably on YouTube. Um, I think they're available on DVD. Oh, cool. I mean, I think there's one called like the Ray, through the Ray Harryhausen collection. Oh, Ray Harryhausen okay. did a lot of the um, the stop motion animation. Nice. For it, so. One thing I want to know about the these Martian ships is. Bullets and, uh, you know, shells and any kind of artillery that we have is ineffective against these force shields that they've got, you know, the dome-shaped ones that we mentioned earlier. Yet they can, it lets light through so we can see the ships and they can shoot their heat ray and their skeleton ray out of it. But yet the nuke, mm-hmm. it, it repels the nuke. I don't understand that because it's radiation. It's not, it's like a spectrum. It's not like, uh, an, you know what I mean? It, it, yeah. Why wouldn't radiation penetrate? Yeah, I, mean, I mean, in the, I don't know. I mean, uh, in the book, did they use any kind of weapon like that? I mean, no, because it was written in 1897. They, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They hadn't even had World no, I know, War One yet. It was also sci-fi. Yeah, that's true. But uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think they had anything like nukes in the book. I I would imagine somebody thought mm-hmm. of something like that, but I'd have to go and read that. I have never actually read the War of the Worlds novel. So let's see. So yeah. So we we've got. I guess H. E. Wells. Go ahead. I was saying, H.G. Wells, I guess, came to America once, and he didn't like it, so he went home. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> in the scene where the Martian machines are coming down the street, blasting uh, the city L.A., if you look off in the background, you can see a, a small miniature uh, a billboard for Pop, Bob Hope Oh, uh, in the background. Nice. And, and, and then, get, for some reason, it gets blasted by the war machine, even though Bob Hope was still considered a celebrity on, on Paramount. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so, funny. I don't know if George Powell any, had anything against Bob Hope or anything. So. Right. 
Oh, that's crazy. In the book, he the character the main character doesn't really have a name and he's a writer and he's it takes place in London. And in the movie, he's a scientist named, you know, Clayton Forrester and he's uh, it takes place in Los Angeles. So I thought that was an interesting shift. Yeah. yeah because science in the 50s, especially science fiction, was very popular at the time. So when I make him a scientist. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think so. I guess. You always had to have scientists back then, you know. All right. So then you've got chaos in the city where uh, the, everyone's panicking. They're fleeing. Nobody knows what the hell to do because these things are just coming in, destroying all the buildings and stuff. And then you've got that one guy who's got the briefcase full of money, and that's all he's concerned about. <laughs> and I don't know if it was Forrester or some character, maybe it was just a random passerby, just goes, your money's no good anymore. And it's like the end of the world, and all he cares about is his money. Well, it's like the two guys in uh, Dawn of the Dead. You never know. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it was like, he's trying to drive all the scientific supplies and end up, tackle them it's like those fools they cut their own throats yeah yeah and that was a crazy scene where they're they're fleeing and then they get he gets clobbered and they steal the truck yeah. what the hell yeah, i know <laughs> and then later on he finds it tipped over down the other street and finds a school bus sign i guess the scientist always like it's like build that back yeah <laughs> it's like screaming out their names and all this equipment is gone it's like what are people going to do it it's like okay end of the world's coming here let's go steal uh scientific equipment and vcrs you know <laughs> it's like oh i got a beaker i got a microscope oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah like, i said stealing essentials like food right. water ammunition <laughs> i got a microscope no kidding <laughs> i got a sphygmo mammometer let's use that all right, so let's talk about the the sort of the the final sequence in the movie where it starts with him, you know, after the um that whole debacle in the streets, he's running through the city, and it's really great shots of him just, you know, in the empty streets. And what I love about this these scenes that as they come along is it looks like it's over. You know, he's trying to find Sylvia. The aliens have decimated everything. It's 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 it. What are they going to do? There's nothing they can do. And then, you know, all hope is lost until he hears singing from a church. And then he runs in. And, and what I thought was cool about that scene was that the, the singing was kind of drowning out the laser blasts and the explosions outside. Mm. And it was all because of uh, something that happened to her as a, as, a, as a child getting lost once. And her uncle Matthew found her. That's right. Yep. That was the story that he remembered. And so he goes there. So, of course, uh, church number one. The, she's not there. So then he keeps running, keeps looking for her. He gets to a second church, and she's still not there. And it sounds like the three bears here. <laughs> I was going to say that. This church is cold. This church, is... <laughs> this church has true salvation. <laughs> Hallelujah. But it was but it was after he goes to the second church that uh, the, is when he finds the truck upside down and all the equipment is gone. So at that point, when they established that, Yes, indeed, the equipment is gone. Once again, all hope is lost. You're like, what are they going to do? <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately, you know, he gets to the third church and, you know, it does all kinds of couples and families and people, you know, just praying and they don't know what else to do. I mean, what, what are you going to do? What are they going to do? That's You go to the church, you, yeah. you pray, <laughs> kiss your ass goodbye, <laughs> say a prayer. Well that, well, that was always the, uh, the cornerstone of community back then. 
Yes, um, that's true. And, and I don't think it, I don't think it was really ramming religion down the people's throats at all. I mean, the movie? No, absolutely not. In that way? Yeah. No, I agree. Well, but what I love about that scene, what though. people did back then. Yeah, exactly. And again, what else are you going to do? You know, and they, um, what I love about that scene, though, is you can just feel the death encroaching. You know, it's over. It's over, Johnny. Yeah. It kind of almost, um, it kind of almost feels like, um, like, like something you would see happening out of World War II, kind of. Yeah, I guess. The people taking shelter in church in World War II. Yeah, like yeah. a bomb raid or something. And I think that that was um, that was intentional. I think because of the. I mean, this movie definitely oh, yeah. has a Cold War vibe with the whole nuclear thing, but they were still. Everybody was still reeling from World War Two, so you, oh, yeah. you saw shades of that in a lot of movies of this time period. I find it amazing all those wide shots of people hiding in the hills. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. It was like it was like a was like a one day shoot. Everyone show up here. We'll give you free sandwiches. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's a cut. Everybody go home. <laughs> right. Take an extra sandwich with you. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, how do you load that many people up there? <laughs> right. I know kidding, huh? Oh my god. Well, they did they pulled it off. I mean, it could have been a match shot too. Yeah, well they they certainly didn't digitally insert those people, so so that we've got um, you know, ultimately in the third church, like I said, he finds Sylvia and they're holding each other as one of the alien ships literally just falls like a brick out of the sky. And um the as the people go to look at it, going, What the heck? Uh a door opens. And an alien arm starts to reach out, and then it drops dead to the ground. And that's when the people realize it's... That creeped the hell out of me when I saw it as a kid, because I never thought we'd ever see them other than in the house. Oh, yeah. Um, and you didn't know if it was dead. You didn't really... Yeah. And I love that you don't even see the inside of the ship. It lets your imagination just... It's like, it's like that's why I, I hated when they showed the inside of the mothership in Close Encounters, a special edition. Oh, right. to see the inside of the ship. I know, I know. It kind of defeats the whole point of the thing. Let your imagination fill in the blanks. Right. Because anything we can imagine would be better than what they could show us, you know? My uncle was always saying, it's like, where'd they put the toilet in that thing? I'm like, Uncle Ken, I think I did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like on this island Earth. What's a logical... (laughs) (laughs) Like on this island Earth, on on the bridge, there's all toilets, you know? (laughs) <laughs> well first they say shit and then they do it yeah <laughs> well you don't have to waste time getting up and going to the lavatory it's already there at your command station You're right there, yeah. <laughs> but i always thought that the alien i i always forget when i get to that scene i'm like oh god what's it gonna do now and then boom it drops dead you're like oh right <laughs> I, I like how they just to symbolize that it uh, was dead, all they had to do was have the veins stop pulsating and change uh, the color gel to a different color. Yeah, that was, again, they knew what they were doing with the effects. Yeah, but the gel was like, it turns into like a green or something. Yeah, yep. Like you said, with the whole veins and everything just, you know, stopping to pulsate, it's, it's awesome. It's just a, the simplest way of indicating to the audience that it's dead. There's, there's one shot of a, a Martian machine crash into a building, and then, and they use they use I think they use the same shot twice, but they just reversed it. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that looks like the same shot, just not facing left. Right. 
So. so the people then basically upon seeing that they kind of start to figure that it's over and it's not till the narrator tells us that it's officially over, that it was bacteria that kills the aliens. So Joe, what lesson did we learn from this movie? Um, always wash your hands and use uh, hand sanitizer. Wear a spacesuit when traveling to another okay. planet. <laughs> Oh, well, I thought this was like a COVID um, uh, morality play. Um, <laughs> well, there you go. They should have worn their masks. They probably wouldn't have got sick and died. <laughs> See? <laughs> it's relevant today. There you go. Let's, let, let's welcome the, the invading forces. <laughs> yeah, I know. They could probably do a hell of a lot better than us. Yeah. Um, Come but, on, aliens. But we... when, it ended with them almost, when it ended with them almost singing, I almost expected to, the song to go into like, <laughs> oh that's so funny that almost sounds like that <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny too because i'm watching Sorry, it george pal yeah when i was watching it this time around and, and what's his name forrest is running through the um through this empty city and i'm thinking to myself all hope is lost and then in my mind i can hear the the narrator from the first episode of lost in space going all hope is lost for the jupiter 2 <laughs> <laughs> you almost expect like a glum to show up like we'll never make it yeah we're all doomed <laughs> you know it's they didn't actually have a character like that in this movie it's funny that you brought that up because you know usually there's always the one guy that's like game over man game over <laughs> you know well sylvia van bruin kind of lost her her mind um when she was freaking out in the house there right yeah that's true she like, did fail a sanity check there like lap her or something <laughs> I, I don't think he did slap her. I think no, I was I, waiting he, for him to he, slap her. He just shook her. <laughs> shook her, yeah. But a friend might told me today, it's like, that's kind of sexist. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, well, she could, you know, she could be strong in the part too. Like, but that's just the way they want it. It's like, stop. I know. No gender into it. Dude. Just let it, let it be what it is. <laughs> well, it's so stupid because people don't, they never take a movie in the context of when it was made. You know, and that's just yeah. how women were portrayed back then. That's all. It's not bad. It's not good. It's just is what it is. Well, and she was pretty hot. Yeah. So who cares? Let us scream. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be screaming later. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> we're going to have to put a rated how about, R how on about that, how, how about that scene where they steal that plane, that random plane? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. First they were up in the air, also it's like, here they come. And then we're, they go back down, all of a sudden you see this tree come out of nowhere, like a miniature tree. When she's yelling at him, she's like, you're too low. And he's like, I'm trying to stay out of the airspace or something. <laughs> and yeah, then the tree shows up. And the... Yeah, because the jets are in the way. Right. Oh, that's right. The fighter jets were coming. <laughs> here they come. <laughs> oh, my God. That was so funny. So he's over... good at screaming, too. Yes, that's true. He did quite a bit of screaming in the movie. <laughs> after, uh, he probably had to change his underwear after they encountered the alien in the house there. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I should have worn my brown pants today. <laughs> so, on that note, Joe, what, what are your final thoughts of 1953's <laughs> War of the Worlds? Uh, it's still fantastic. It still holds up. It's almost better than a lot of the films we, that come out today. <laughs> yep, yep, that's true. Um, it, yeah, it, and it's fun. It's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun, and it's just visually beautiful. And would you recommend this to a younger audience? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean that's that's probably definitely showed on Technicolor, right? 
Yes. Like the same Technicolor cameras use Wizard of Oz or um, you can't say the title anymore, Gone with the Wind. Why can't um, you say the title anymore? But um, it's now been, has a disclaimer on it now saying it's, uh, you know, Gone with the Wind. It's it's racist. Oh. Um, oh. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't even catch that. I had to go this. there. Sorry. Aye, aye, aye. All right. Yeah, well, then War of the Worlds is specious. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and ageist, too, with a priest. Right, right. <laughs> Boy, we're, we're, really, we're really opening up a can of, uh, um, oh, whatever, worms. Yeah, a can of whoop worms. But yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I definitely a think this tentacles. is... Yes. <laughs> Lovecraft's new tentacles. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think this is a, a required viewing. Uh, young people really need to see this movie, and it's just so good. The remake was, like I said, it was okay. It was not what I expected. I didn't quite understand how the aliens were underground to begin with, and blah blah blah. But <laughs> you know, see this first if you get, if you want to watch the remake. They took the subway. Um, I don't know. Right? <laughs> yeah, the interdimensional subway from Mars. <laughs> so, Joe, <laughs> tell us about your uh, what upcoming projects you got going on. I'm currently involved in a project with Leanne Rubin called uh, The Other Side of Midnight. Um, it's a creature feature, which is also crossed between like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, Leanne Rubin plays Sahara hostess Ursula Grimsworth, and she has two puppet co-hosts, Wilton and Wilmouse. And we'll be showing classic public domain horror movies and probably some independent ones if we can. Um, so we're very excited to get that going soon. And excellent, excellent. I'm also working, also working a short Lovecraftian film with Michael Neal. Oh, cool. But, nice. Well, good yeah. job. Thank you for joining us again today. When uh, I look forward to you and I discussing our next film in our classic sci-fi film series here on Then Is Now. I look forward to it. I'd have a fantastic time. Thanks a lot, Joe. Take care. You too. Bye bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Then Is Now podcast. We've got a lot more coming up with our special classic science fiction movie series, as well as an upcoming series on universal horrors and fun interviews and a lot more coming up. So please stay tuned and don't forget to go to wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a great review so more people can find us. If you want to chime in about today's episode or send us any suggestions for future episodes, please email us at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also check us out at havenpodcasts.com where you can find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers movies and spaghetti westerns. All of our podcasts can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and more. So please check us out. This is Rigor signing off. Class dismissed. Thank you.